Go to Exodus chapter number one. If you are uh, new or around here, we typically do what we call preaching through books of the Bibles, expository preaching, if you would. Um, believe that this is the best way for us to understand and hold to and be able to grasp God's redemptive purposes throughout history, to understand the whole of what the scriptures are teaching us. We believe that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. And uh, the best way to understand and know it is going through it, uh, verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, whatever you want to say. And so last several months into the fall and even last few weeks of this year, we have been going through the book of Colossians. And now I feel like the next place we should turn is to the book of Exodus, so we're going to be there for a while. We won't go through every single verse and every little detail and building of the tabernacle and so on, but enough to give us a good overview of what God would speak to us through His Word. So, so again, I'll challenge you if you want to uh, understand and be aware of what's going on um, I would challenge you, I know many of you have a devotional time, a time maybe you're reading through the Bible and, and you've already passed the book of Exodus. Um, I challenge you to make it a regular part of your scripture intake, reading through it, preparing your hearts as we get into the Word each and every Sunday. Alright, so Exodus chapter 1 is where we are. If you have your Bibles, hope you do. Turn there with me, we'll read entire chapter here this morning, hear what God will say to us through His Word. Amen. Chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, and Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. The people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied, and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other serve as midwife to the 
Hebrew women and you see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. People multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast to the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Man, this is the word. The Lord, this morning, as I've said, we are going to begin a series of messages here. The book of Exodus. Exodus is probably the heart of the Old Testament. Genesis depicts to us the creation of the universe. Exodus presents to us probably the, the creation and formation of the people of God. We see then Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, but if you well remember, Abraham had one son, Isaac had one son, it wasn't until Jacob where we see 12 sons, which become the foundation of the people of Israel. And of course, here at the time and when Jacob and his family enter into Israel, we're told 70 people enter in. And so here in Exodus, we see the descendants of Abraham truly become the people of God. As they're led out of Egypt, as they wander through the wilderness, as they form a covenant with Yahweh, the formation and shape of this nation begins to be seen. And it really does set the tone, the tender for the, the tenor for the rest of the Old Testament. Everything that you see in the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures are, are really a looking back to the time of the Exodus. As well, of course, as looking forward to the ultimate deliverance that is found in Christ. Of course, the name Exodus means departure. I believe the dating of these events occurred somewhere around 1500, 1440 B.C., somewhere in that time frame. We know the main characters of the book, of course, are Moses and the people of Israel, along with Aaron, Miriam, his brother and sister, and of course, Pharaoh, this king of Egypt. It is a story that we believe is historical, that these events truly happened. We believe that these words are God-breathed, breathed out by God Himself as He led and directed to Moses to to write these words. And of course, as such, we take them seriously. We seek to apply this book within the larger context of God's redeeming activity in the world and in human history. And of course, strive to show us that these events that are recorded in Exodus ultimately point us to the Lord Jesus Christ as all of Scripture 
designed to do. Jesus talks about it in Luke 24 that all of Scripture points to Him. And so as we go through Exodus, we are going to see how Christ is our great deliverer. And how we are looking forward to an exodus or have experienced an exodus through His death and resurrection. And so as we get into this book, we realize that there are three really main themes that kind of surface in the book of Exodus. These themes are deliverance, found in the first 18 chapters. They are covenant, found really in chapter 19 through chapter 40. And finally, throughout the book, the theme of the presence of God. The divine presence going with, before, behind, covering the people of Israel all the way from their journey from Egypt to Canaan. God was with them. His presence was with them. He was going before them, preparing the way, opening up the path. For them to enter the promised land that He had given to them. And so as we go through this book, we'll, we'll see these, playing, the, these themes play out. And really, I believe that we see these themes playing out in a small way in this first chapter. Notice that I've named this sermon our, our greatest need. And the reason I named that is because our greatest need is the, the same as the people of Israel in this first chapter. It is the greatest need of every human being that has ever lived on the face of this earth. What is that greatest need? Well, it is my first point this morning, the need. The need for deliverance the need for deliverance we begin in these first 14 verses of exodus and you immediately see that this theme of a deliverance this need for deliverance appears right away we're given in these first seven or six or seven verses whatever you want to say a kind of a summation of the last 13 chapters of the book of genesis particularly chapter number 46 Verse 1 again, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. We're told there in verse 5, all of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Obviously, we recall that story of how Joseph was sold into slavery by the rest of his brothers, he became prime minister, if you would, of the land of Egypt, the second in charge, second only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph was there. Jacob was reunited with him. His son uh, he thought was dead. His son he thought he would never see again. And, of course, during that famine, Jacob brings his family down into Egypt. Joseph settles them there. And then we are told, of course, in verse 7, that the people of Israel, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. By the way, when you read this, and actually when you read really all of Scripture, don't read it like it's one event right after another. You probably remember that TV series, 
several years ago with Kiefer Sutherland called 24, and there they would drag out 24 episodes covering one 24-hour period of time. And of course, that was back in the ancient days where you had to wait a week to watch the next show. You know, you couldn't just binge watch all 24 of them at once. We had it hard back then, kids. You should know, okay? <laughs> but this is not what's going on. You have to know that verse 7 encompasses really 400 years. This is what God told Abraham years before Jacob and Joseph were on the scene. Genesis 15, verse 13, The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. We're told in Exodus 12, verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Just think about those words, 400 years. You know, in 2026, two years away, America will celebrate its 250th year of existence, the semi-quincentennial. Thank goodness for Google, because I would have never known that otherwise. <laughs> Think about all that has happened in 250 years. You know, I looked on Northampton Community College they have American history one and two. They have the black experience. They have an American experience of warfare, civil war and reconstruction, modern American history from 1945 to the present, as well as three special studies in history classes. Oh, and by the way, a history of Pennsylvania. So even in 250 years, and this is, of course, just a community college, Study seven or eight different classes covering American history. Perhaps you've been to Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., and, and as you are leaving there, exiting the, the room in which Abraham Lincoln uh, ultimately died and passed away, and as you're getting ready to leave and, of course, go into the bookshop to spend your money, you remember that there's a tower of books there in the room across from Ford's Theater, over 15,000 books were collected that were written on Abraham Lincoln alone. 15,000 books covering a six-year period of history, of course, covering his life as well. There's more being written. I recently listened to a podcast of a guy that had just released a, another history of, of Abraham Lincoln. And so you realize 400 years. It's a lot going on. So I read these words in verses 8 and 9 there. Arose a new king over Egypt. He did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 10, Come and let us deal shrewdly with them. As they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them. Afflict them with heavy burdens. Build for Pharaoh, store cities, pithom. Ramses. We really don't talk a lot about these verses. 
especially with what happens later in the chapter. But really, when you read these verses, you, you see Pharaoh's first attempt at exterminating or at least curtailing the, the population of the people of Israel. He takes the people and he makes them into a lower caste of, of individuals, a lower grouping of people all in the hopes that they would repopulate in, in lower numbers, he decides that he is going to work them, work them so hard, work them to death. Don't give them any opportunity or any freedom or any way of thinking, hey, maybe we want to have a large family with a lot of kids. You realize, and you can make the case so easily, the government such as ours makes it so difficult for families, for marriages to thrive and prosper. A society looks down on marriage when motherhood and especially fatherhood is, is denigrated and done away with. I was hearing a story that came out the other week about how it is so difficult for a person who's on disability income to, to even begin to get married because all of a sudden... Their incomes are multiplied together and a person can't continue to make ends meet. We live in a world where, where it is being discouraged for our young people, our young adults that are entering into society to, to start a family and to, to make a go at it. Come out of college over $100,000 in debt. Home price is so expensive. Insurance is so outrageous. Then we sit here and we wonder, why is it? Why is it that, that we aren't hitting the, the population replacement rate of, of 2.1 children? I think we're down to like 1.8. And it's because we live in a world where it has become untenable. It's a sad and unfortunate thing. No longer kids and young people have the advantage that you and I had even a few years ago. I think we have a picture of our first apartment. 600 some square feet, one bedroom, one living room, kitchen, combination, whatever. And I think all we had in there was a chair, a dining room set of four that my mom and dad had bought us and an ironing board. Don't know why I had that, but whatever. <laughs> Now it's become so difficult. Of course, Pharaoh has his plan. I realize, of course, his plan backfires. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread. Dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You see that word ruthlessly repeated there in both verse 13 and 14? means to crush, to grind away, to, to break. Egyptians made their lives miserable. Miserable. They, they crushed them under the weight of their burden. Under the weight of their slavery. 
They ensnared them. Bonds of slavery. Again, as I said, this is this is not only the story of the people of Israel. This is our story as well. This is our greatest need, if you would. You and I are, are under a crushing weight. Not of overtaxation, not of overburden by an oppressive government, although that may be the case. We are under a far greater weight than what the Egyptians or the Israelites were in. Not under the oppression of a pharaoh, a king, a government, president, a governor, but rather we are under a far greater oppression. That is the weight of sin that has bound our lives, has captured our lives, has held us to imprison. Paul tells Timothy, his protege, that as a pastor, he must patiently try to convince individuals to hear the truth. He must patiently preach the gospel to them over and over and over again. And the reason is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. Paul says that they might come to their senses, that they might escape from the snare of the devil. Why? Because they have been captured by Him. They have been captured. If you are here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are in slavery. Say, no, I'm not. I'm an American citizen. I'm in the land of the free and the home of the brave. No, I have my own house. I have my own apartment. I work for myself. I have all of this. No. Reality is you're in slavery. The enemy has you bound. The sins that have come into your life, they have you bound. You are not free to do what you want to do. He has taken you captive to do His will. His good pleasure. That's why the story of the Israelites is your story. You need someone, someone to set you free. Of course, the good news is this. God provides deliverance. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra, the other was Pua. You serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on a burstal. If it is the son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, you shall live. You know why we just you just have to stop the story here for a moment. Realize just how awesome it is that Moses would record the names of these midwives. We never even get the name of the Pharaoh. We don't know who this Pharaoh is. And of course, if you read any commentary or any history. Looking at this, there's all kinds of debate about who this might be that's afflicting the people of Israel. You know, Moses gets a visit by his father-in-law and his father-in-law watches Moses get out of bed early in the morning and goes to where Moses is and Moses is sitting there all day and there's a long line of people wanting to talk to him, wanting his decision, his judgment. His father-in-law looks at him and says, Moses, you are doing way too much. Find some guys to help you out. 
told that Moses appoints elders. We are not even given their names. We don't even know who these 70 elders of Israel are. But we know the names of these two midwives, Shifra and Puah. Alan Ross, writing in a commentary, states it this way, and what would it take for that process of deliverance to begin? What would it take for the will of earth's mightiest man to be frustrated? It would only take a few powerless women who dared to take God seriously. The contrast between Pharaoh and the midwives could hardly be more stark. He is the emperor. They are slaves. He is a male. They are females. He is rich. They are poor. He is all powerful. They are powerless. Jesus sits there. Home of a wealthy Pharisee. Gathered around all the big shots and the people of Israel. Woman comes up to him and pours out expensive bottle of perfume on his feet and wipes his feet with her tear, her hair. Jesus says, everywhere the gospel is preached, someone is going to tell this woman's story. We only know who's at the dinner there. We know it's at the house of Simon. But we know that a widow woman came. And now all around the world, people, no doubt pastors by the thousands today, are going to talk about her story. I don't think we're much. We don't think we have much to offer. I can't sing. I can't speak. I can't do this. Be amazed at what happens if you would just let God use your life however you are. However you are, if you would just say, here I am, I give myself to you. The whole world knows the name of Shifra and Puah. The name of the Pharaoh is relegated to the ash bins of history. So this leads me to my second point today, which is this, these midwives. It's midwives' relationship with God. It's midwives' relationship with God. You read again in verse 17, you read those words that these midwives feared God. They did not do as a king of Egypt commanded them. And we come here to verse 19 and we're told the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife comes to them. There's a couple of things to think about here. First of all, were the Hebrew women really giving birth before the midwives could show up? Of course, the answer is probably certainly not in every situation. Cameron, our oldest child, was born. Mary called me. I was at work and said, I think it's time. And I promptly ran into a ditch or a tree or something because I was scared to death. <laughs> Once I recovered my wits here, went to the hospital and they checked her out and said, well, you're really close, but not yet. Contrast that by the time our youngest child was born, 
She said those words again. I think it was time, and I still ran into a ditch because never got any easier. <laughs> but we go and drop off her older two boys at my mom and dad's house. We live real close to the hospital where Colton was born. And the time we get to the hospital, walk inside, and nurses are like, yeah, we'll have a room ready for you in a couple hours. And Mary looked at him and said, no, I don't have a couple hours. I need a room now. And sure enough, we got a room. And we got a baby very shortly thereafter. <laughs> in fact, we had a friend one time on Interstate 35. It goes right through the heart of Kansas City. Watching the news and all of a sudden he's on the news. And what was he doing? Well, there was a lady decided she wasn't going to go to the hospital. She was going to have a baby right on the highway. Keenan was happened to be close by, happened to realize something was going on, and I don't know how all that happened. It was a long time ago, but there he is delivering a baby right in the middle of the highway. But the reality is not, not every baby was born that quickly. does not mean that lying is acceptable or that there's gray areas where it is acceptable to be dishonest. His reality that obeying God, honoring God, protecting, in this case, innocent life, outweighs the requirement to be honest to a wicked king. Of course, I'm not saying that you have carte blanche just to go out, lie, and be dishonest or whatever. But sometimes these issues aren't as, as easy as what we, what we think, right? I mean, there's so many Germans, uh, uh, Germans who, who sympathize with the Jews who are trying to rescue the Jews. And, and here they were being approached and, and Nazi soldiers would come to their house and say, we hear that you keep Jews here. What do you do? How do you handle that situation? Others, you probably remember the story of Brother Andrew who had smuggled Bibles into Soviet-dominated countries. The times of choice had to be made. Is it, is it good to maybe hedge the truth a little bit all in the process of honoring God and doing what God has called you to do. And of course, this leads us to a, another thing to consider, especially in the world in which we are living today. And that is this question of whether or not we are willing to do what is right. Whether we are willing to stand for what is right, despite the potential consequences that might come our way it probably would have been very easy for these two ladies to simply do what Pharaoh told them to do they might have gotten a lot of money they might have gotten a lot of riches that they would have been obedient to him but yet they realize they feared God they realize there is something more important than the riches of Egypt what are you going to do? What are you going to do if a situation like this arises in your life? Remember the words of Peter and the disciples 
They stood before the high priest and they said, Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. I'm not telling you that you have a reason to lie or to be dishonest. Peter certainly wasn't in his situation. He just simply told the high priest that he was going to obey God. But, but again, it begins with our relationship with God in the first place. And if you are not at a place where your relationship with God is strong and secure and stable and steadfast, even in the easy times of life, what are you going to do? When the threat of imprisonment, the threat of jail, when the threat of maybe even execution comes your way, what am I going to do? I mean, it would be so much easier. Someone show up tomorrow morning and say, hey, you're a church, you guys, people do weddings in church, right? Yeah, yeah, we do weddings. Here's a couple we want you to marry. You have to look at them and say, no, that's, that's not what God wants. Okay, we're going to close down your church and seize all your assets. Turn this thing into a casino or whatever. Apartment, I guess. Maybe a Dunkin' Donuts or something because we could use another one in town. What am I going to do? What am I, what am I going to do? How, how am I going to stand? Now is the time to make sure our willingness, our commitment to serve and follow Christ. Because unfortunately, this choice is coming. The choice is coming, even for us. There's a great need for deliverance. Our midwives are willing to follow God no matter what. Third point this morning, God's presence. God's presence was with these women. Again, as I've already pointed out, read this chapter, don't read it in five minutes or whatever time I read it this morning. It's probably safe to assume that there's periods of years. It's not that Pharaoh calls them into his throne room and says, hey, I want you to kill the Hebrew boys. Next day, he calls him back and he says, hey, why didn't you kill the Hebrew boys? Years are going by. Years are going by and Pharaoh is riding around in his chariot, his, his armor-plated chariot, whatever he had back then. As he's seeing the people of Israel, he's realizing there's an awful lot of young boys running around that city. Calls them back in. What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, I can't help it. By the time we get there, they've already had a baby. Pharaoh's like, hey, you got to get rid of them. But notice God's presence is with these women. God dealt well with them. God blessed them. Their own families were expanded and grew. God opened the wounds of the midwives. They had their own families. And it's all a result a result of their fear of God. It's all a result because they honored God, because they were willing to say, I will obey God rather than this man. Even if he is the powerful, most powerful man in the world. God's presence is with the midwives, and not only the midwives, but the entire nation of Israel. 
God's presence was with him. He sees, he remembers, and he is preparing a way for their deliverance in the story of these midwives. Points to the fact that in the very next chapter, a deliverer is going to come. When you read through the story of Exodus, analogies in this story are striking. First of all, you have a king who's determined to kill the seed of the woman. That's what, that's what God told Adam and Eve way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heads, you will bruise his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent. The serpent was told that he would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But you know that he has not been content to bruise merely the heel, merely the smallest portion. And so ever since then, the enemy has been out there trying to kill the people of God, trying to destroy mankind. We know it started right in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills his brother. Fortunately, Abel was born. Or Seth, I should say, was born. Genesis 6, the same thing happened. But God preserves Noah. And now here we are going on down the road. He finds himself trying to kill Moses. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, Pharaoh commanded to all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. These words sound familiar. Let me take you 1,500 years forward in time. Matthew chapter 2. Men come and visit a king. We don't know that there are three, okay? It's only because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There might have been a lot more. <laughs> they come and they said, Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Verse 16, when Herod, they saw that he had been tricked by all the wise men, came furious and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were in two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained. Herod does the exact same thing. And how ironic, how deliciously ironic. Mary and Joseph flee with the baby Jesus back into Egypt. Egypt, they tried to have him killed, and now Mary and Joseph are there in Egypt hiding from another despotic king. See, in spite of the orders of these wicked kings, God uses a couple midwives to bring about the birth of a man named Moses. A man who one day will stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. One day who will stand before the Red Sea and stretch out his hand. Mighty an Egyptian army be swallowed in the midst of the sea. More importantly, God uses a virgin teenage girl to bring birth 
to someone far greater than Moses. Because what we have to realize is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Walk not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What is Paul telling us? He's telling us that Moses was insufficient. Moses could not bring the people into the promised land. We know that bears out. He never enters the land of Canaan. But Jesus Christ, by His death and resurrection, by God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, becomes our Deliverer. He is the One who can set us free. My question to you this morning is this. Do you know His deliverance in your life? Can you stand here this morning and say, I have been set free? Again, not from Joe Biden, not from Josh Shapiro, not from Lamont McClure, the Northampton County Executive. Sorry, I don't know all you guys that live in Monroe County. Sorry. Can you stay here and say, I have been set free from the clutches of the enemy that have me bound. I have found my greatest need being met in Christ. If not, the opportunity is here for you to know it. The opportunity is here for you today to walk in that freedom, to walk in that liberty that Christ has given to you. To make your calling an election sure. For you to understand that Christ will set you free. And by the way, if He will set you free, His presence will be with you. Maybe you find yourself in the story of these two ladies, Pua and Shifra. Maybe you're facing a real life situation. I know some of you have and shared it with me. Some of you maybe haven't shared it. But you find yourself in a real life situation thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Can I challenge you? Can I encourage you this morning? God's presence will be with you if you will do the right thing and you will honor God, and you will make your choice to follow Him and live for Him, God will be with you. He will watch over you. It's so easy for us sometimes to, to, to just want to take the easy road. Let me encourage you, do what is right. Honor God. Yes, obey your leaders, those who have authority over your life as much as you're able. But more importantly, honor God and God will take care of you. Amen. Let's pray this morning, shall we?
Father, we thank you today for the courage and faith of two women who were given such a powerful edict. And they stood there They said, we will obey God rather than man. Lord, we look at our own situation and many of us grew up in a situation where it just, it was so easy, so easy. We'd get pictures of our leaders going to church, carrying Bibles or whatever. Places would close on Sundays, people would go, and now that time's slipping away so quickly. Men and women, maybe even here, who are in a corporation, in a business, in an office, a warehouse, being confronted with choices of whether or not they will honor God or whether or not they will give in and cave in to the pressures of this world. Lord, I pray that you would remind them today that you are with them. God, no matter what they have to do, you will walk with them. You will never leave them or forsake them. Lord, more importantly, perhaps there is someone here today Again, they may have all that they want. They may be independently wealthy. They may work for themselves. They may be living a life of luxury. But they don't know you as Savior. Bound in prison. Maybe Maybe they've never even got a speeding ticket, but they are bound in prison. Pray today that they would find freedom. They would find a deliverer. Not in the keeping of the Mosaic Law, but freedom that comes from a real relationship with Christ. That is our greatest need. I pray that you would meet that need in their life. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this old song as we finish time. No matter what, I pray that you can say that.